0: But this morning we're in Psalm chapter 2, and if you are able to, if you would uh, stand with me in honor of God as we read His Word together, Uh, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You may be seated. May God encourage us through His Word this morning. Father, our desire would be that we would tremble with joy as we come before You, that we would be humble, that we would uh, bless us as we take refuge in Your Son, Jesus, we pray this in His name. Amen. Well, in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch that we have been studying, we see a people who are promised a kingdom. Beginning with Abraham, there's this this promised nation. And as you go through the rest of the Pentateuch, we see different elements of this coming kingdom revealed and the people that God reveals it to express excitement. So we see that there's a, a, a coming kingdom. We see that there's, there's a coming king to go with this kingdom. We see there's going to be this coming priest, a prophet, a sacrifice. We see that God's kingdom is going to be established in this land. And as we go through the Pentateuch, the people are excited. You, you end the Pentateuch And the people are encamped in the plains of Moab and they're getting ready to go into the promised land and there's excitement as they are preparing to do that. And there's a question as you come to the end of the Pentateuch, are the people going to live by God in faith? Are they going to trust His promise, particularly His promise of a coming seed? Now, the the interesting thing as you go through the Pentateuch is that even though the people express excitement about this coming kingdom, When the kingdom is actually revealed, whenever elements of God's kingdom plan are revealed or God calls his people to live in obedience to him, very often we see that there is resistance. So, as the kingdom begins to manifest itself, the people say they're excited about the kingdom, but then as they begin to see the kingdom manifest itself, they they pull back, they withdraw, there's unbelief, there's rebellion, there's disobedience. In other words, The people are excited about the idea of the kingdom in in abstract, like theoretically, but real kingdom living is not something that excites them. And of course, that's the issue that we need to think about this morning as well. Are we truly excited about God's kingdom? We're at a different place in God's redemptive plan, so there was the the Pentateuch and, and now we had the, the prophets prophesying the coming Messiah, and, and Jesus came, of course, and, and we begin to see his kingdom established, and yet his kingdom has not yet been fully realized. And so we stand at this point in redemptive history where we're saying still, God, your, your kingdom come. Jesus has come, his, his kingdom has begun to be inaugurated, and yet it's not, it's not fully here. It hasn't been fully realized. And so we say, your kingdom come, but do we really mean it? Are we truly excited about God's kingdom? Do we, do we want to live in obedience to God and to King Jesus? About six years ago or so, I, I took my kids, Whitney and I took the kids to, to Disney World, and there was great excitement about going to Disney World. We get down to Florida, and we're staying at a hotel, and we would see little previews come on about, you know, on the TV, okay, here's you know, watching a show or something, here's a commercial, come to Disney World, here's all the exciting things to do at Disney World, here's the Magic Kingdom, and so we, we go to Disney World, all the kids are just, you know, excited, oh, we can't wait to go, and one morning we, we come there, we go into the Magic Kingdom, we go into Tomorrowland, and it's it's early in the morning, and so there are not a, a ton of people there, but we notice that they, 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 you know, people are beginning to gravitate to all these different rides. We notice that one ride, stride, whatever you call it, is is not quite yet. There's no people in line and the kids are excited. It's um, Lilo and Stitch. I haven't haven't seen the movie because it looks terrible, but um, it, you know there's that ride, and the kids, oh, look, dad, look, there's no one in line, let's ride the ride. They're so excited, they're thrilled, and, and we, we go inside. Now, it should have been a warning, there are 50,000 people in this park, and no one is in this ride. But we go in, we go into the room, and we are the only family, we're the only people there that are on this ride, and they strap us down, which also should have been a warning. But, um, and, the, and the ride start. the little show starts, stride, whatever, and, and the lights go down, and I have, I have a five-year-old and a six-year-old on either side of me, and the lights go down, and I hadn't noticed before, but the seats that we're, that were sitting in have speakers and vents. And, and suddenly, in the speakers, there's these, these voices whispering in the dark, something like that, you know, and the kids lose their minds. I mean... <laughs> And then from the vents, these these little you know uh, stitches, this mischievous character I suppose, and 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 and, like he's making belching sounds and stuff, and like little Dorito smells come through the vent, and and, yeah, and (laughs) again, no one was in line, Uh, and the kids lose again, they lose their minds, they are going crazy. I've got a kid on each side of me. Yeah, get us out of here, Dad, please. There are, I still have scars from claw marks of them clawing at my arm. Let us go, let us go. They were really excited about the idea of this ride in theory. It sounded great, it sounded awesome, but as they began to experience it, it took about .5 seconds from them to realize, this is not for us. Yeah. Now, when it comes to God's kingdom... <laughs> God's kingdom, unlike a ride at Disney World, is something that is glorious and beyond our imagination and something of of where where the fullness of God's joy and presence can be experienced. And, And yet, as we begin to see God's kingdom revealed in our lives, sometimes we're less than excited about it. So we we stand at this point in God's plan of redemptive history. We say, "Oh yeah, God, you know, let Jesus come, King Jesus, and let Your kingdom come." But as we begin to see God bringing about His kingdom in our lives through circumstances that are sanctifying us, as we see what it looks like to live in obedience to God, we are less than excited. There are claw marks as we are brought into the kingdom, kicking and screaming in some ways. Here's here's my prayer for us this morning here's my prayer, kind of the main idea, the main prayer that I want us to think about as we think about Psalm 2. May God change our hearts, right? May God change our hearts this morning as we look at Psalm 2 so that we can say with our lips and our lives, thy kingdom come. May God change our hearts this morning so that we can truly say with our lips and with our lives, thy kingdom come. In Psalm 2, there's 12 verses, and there's four stanzas. Each stanza has three verses, and each stanza, each set of three verses, has someone speaking, except the last one. The psalmist is talking in the last one, but in each of the other three stanzas, we see someone speaking. And I want us to look at each stanza, see who's talking, see what they're saying, and I want to kind of present this in, in, in terms of a story, a story that is unfolding as we see people and the relationship to God and God's kingdom establishing itself. Here's the first stanza, and here's the first part of the story, verses 1 through 3. Once there were subjects who rebelled against a great and good king. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what's taking place here? The, The nations, all the powers of the earth that you and I are aware of, are united in something. In fact, if you think about it, the the differences that exist among nations and among peoples are very superficial at, at a fundamental level there's there's unity we do not want to walk in obedience to god and here the the psalmist in pictures all the nations all the powers of the world being united in their opposition against god they're saying we we want and, and now there's there's the first speech and the first speech are the the nations who have gathered against God, against Yahweh God, against his anointed, and we know that's, that's Jesus, and they're saying their, their speech is a speech of rebellion. The nations proclaim their rebellion with their, their speech. Let's burst their bonds apart. Let's cast away their cords from us. There's y- unity of opposition to God. And what's the psalmist's response? how does the psalmist respond to this this rebellion he's he's kind of surprised right he says he says why have, why have they done this why have the nations done this and, and why is he surprised well first of all he's surprised because the king the anointed he's so He's so great. This, this is not some minor king. There, there's no strategic value to be gained in rebellion. Psalm 11989, "Forever, O Lord, your word is, is firmly fixed in the heavens. The rule of this king is so extensive, there's no strategic value in rebelling against him. You can't win. Isaiah, the prophet, says in Isaiah 40, verse 21, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness." Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. There's no ability that the kings really have to rebel against God, and, and the, the psalmist is surprised. He's surprised, first of all, because this is the great king. I was reading an article last week that I, I I understood about every other sentence. It was an article written by a physicist, and he was talking about time and how time exists for us on earth and how different places in the universe experience this thing we call time in different ways. And And it was it's just mind-blowing to think about. But from our perspective we're constrained by time and and god is a god when we when we say that he's omnipresent I, I think you know he's he's not only limited in terms of where he is physically and can can be in any place in the universe and and understand where it, it where what's happening there and, and be there but he's also uh, omnipresent in terms of time like there's no t- t- he doesn't exist in time the sa- same way that you and I do so we have a, a past and we have a present and we have a future God exists outside of that and he he can he can see it all and reign over all of, of time the the past the present the future he is he is a god whose powers we can't even begin to understand the extent of I, I can't even begin to understand the extent of the power of a god who reigns over time the psalmist sees the subjects in rebellion and he says what what's up with this i, I don't understand it he's 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 too powerful to resist but not only is he powerful you know sometimes there are, there are powerful forces that need to be rebelled against There's a moral imperative. There's a line in To Kill a Mockingbird, that that classic novel, where Atticus Finch says to his son, He says, Courage is when you know you're licked before you begin, but you begin anyway and you see it through no matter what. In other words, sometimes there's a powerful, powerful institution or a powerful a moral evil that you know you're going to lose, but your courage is standing up and saying, well, I'm I'm casting off these bounds as much as I can. I'm going to rebel with every, every fiber of my being. There's a moral imperative. But the psalmist is like, but that doesn't apply here either. See, not only is this king great, he's good. He, he's goodness itself. As you come to the end of the psalm, the king is calling people to, to worship Him. The the people are being called to humble themselves and worship this great King. There's joy in, in, in serving Him. Isaiah five sixteen says, the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows Himself holy in righteousness. God, in other words, He's not just a God of justice. He's a God who's revealing Himself. He's revealing Himself as holiness, and He's doing it in, in righteousness. There's no there's no moral imperative to rebelling. It's pointless strategically, it's pointless morally. Why are the kings doing this? Why are the kings rebelling against the why are the kings rebelling against the king, against Yahweh and against this anointed one and this anointed one is connected with the Davidic covenant. The servant David, the anointed one. Why are they doing this? Whenever I was in, in high school, I remember one Sunday, my dad was, was teaching the high school Sunday school class, and uh, sitting there, and, and my dad was, I think he was teaching through the book of Judges at the time, and, and he said something that kind of really, really struck me. He said, you know, uh, for most of you who are in this room, there are, there are two people in your life, and only two people in your life, who only want what's best for you. In other words, they have They have no other motive. There's no other, they're not just, they don't just like you, but there are two people in your life who only want what's good for you. That's your mom and dad about that. And for me, that was certainly true. Now, my parents weren't perfect, of course. They didn't always know perfectly what was best for me. But there were no people like my parents in my life whose whose sole purpose was, was my good. I mean, my friends liked me. Other people wanted good things for me. But here are two people that God had placed in my life whose, whose, whose joy was tied to my, my, my joy in life in a way that no one else was. I thought that was a I thought it was a very self-serving point for my dad, but also very true, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely true. Now, I still rebelled at times, right? But, but that, that thing that my dad said stuck, stuck with me because I, even in my rebellion, I'm like, you know what, this, this doesn't totally make sense. Like, I'm, I'm rebelling against people who only want what's good for me. as we think about the the foolishness of that, that's just a picture of our rebellion against God. I mean, God is not just a a God who wants good things for us. He's a God who is perfect in His knowledge, who's perfect in His power, who's, who's perfect in His goodness, and all He wants is that which is good for us, and yet we're in rebellion. So here's the question for us as we come to the end of this first part. Are we kings in rebellion to the great king? Are you a subject who's established your own kingdom and is in rebellion to the great king? Now you say, well, no, of course not. I'm a believer. I've placed my faith in Christ. Just think about what this means, though. See, rebellion isn't always when it comes to a sovereign king. Rebellion isn't always just saying, you know what, I'm announcing my rebellion against God. Rebellion can be more subtle, right? Some kings reign over vast domains and have vast realms. Some of us have kingdoms that are very small, and yet we're no less passionate about maintaining them. I have this this kingdom of my hobbies, or I have this this kingdom of my relationships, or I have this kingdom of my workplace. I have these these kingdoms that I've established for myself, and and I have no, no desire to relinquish my control over these kingdoms. Or, or, I'm rebellion, or I'm in rebellion as people come into my life or circumstances come into my life that God's sovereign, God is my sovereign king brings these circumstances into my life as he establishes his kingdom. He's working to sanctify me. He's working to establish his kingdom in my life, and I, and I rebel against it. I become angry. I become resentful. I fail to worship him as I ought. Am I a subject in Rebellion. Here's the next part of the story. It says, But the king and his father were so powerful that their kingdom was established anyway. Verse 4, the next stanza, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What does this mean? You have the nations gathered together. like Every force that you and I can imagine has been gathered together saying, we're united in our opposition to this king. We're going to resist the establishment of, of God's kingdom. And how, do this, how does this global rebellion affect God? Answer, not at all. Now we see speech, and this speech is from God. There's several ways that God uses his mouth here. First of all, he, he laughs. laughs. There's kind of a laughter here. See, the, the word there means to, to express amusement about something. So you, you see something, it's, it's kind of funny, and so <laughs> that's, that's cute. This there's, is, there's derision. There's a, there's a mocking as the Lord sees their rebellion. He holds them in derision and then then he speaks and he speaks out of his wrath and he terrifies them in his fury, saying, Look, as for me, I have set my my king on Zion, my holy hill. God sees this rebellion, and there's there's laughter, there's derision. I, I think about the time that I was driving in my car with Whitney, and we had a, a two-year-old little girl, and at the time, and we're we're driving through the 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 back roads of Arkansas, and our little girl is strapped into her car seat, and she gets mad about something, and she, she just screams her head off, and, and she goes, no, you cannot make me. Never! And she starts flailing her, her little arms and her little legs, and I remember looking back in the rearview mirror and having two thoughts. One, I have a demon for a child and and two just kind of laughing at it you know like <laughs> like it was it, like it was just funny you know like she she has this idea that she's going to stop mom and dad from doing something but we're in a car that she has no ability to turn around and do anything and she's strapped into a car seat you know there's nothing she can do god looks at the rebellions of the kings and it's 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 a sad type of funny. It's tragic humor. There's, there's nothing they can do. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, 15, behold the nations. So here's all these, all these nations. All It's a global rebellion. Well, you know what the nations are? The nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're accounted as the dust on the scales. You know, a merchant has a scale and, and there's, there's dust on it. it. It doesn't really affect it you're you know you're on a diet right and you're saying okay i'm gonna i'm gonna lose some weight i'm gonna i'm gonna do well and and every week you weigh yourself and you you, you get ready to weigh yourself and say oh hold on I gotta take the dust off now we're making some progress and then you, you don't do that right well maybe some, if you do uh yeah um it's nothing it's nothing he takes up the coastland the nations are nothing. He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. You could take all the beasts of Lebanon, and that wouldn't be enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. In other words, God is so big, there's no way that your rebellion can affect his plan. I can remember being a kid and kind of seeing the ocean for the first time and walking along the beaches and, and seeing these beautiful sandcastles that people had built, these, these intricate towers and, and drawbridges and just these really cool things that were there on the beach. And we went to the beach and saw them and took pictures with them. And then the next day, they were gone. Those sandcastles had done absolutely nothing to affect the ocean. You and I build these sandcastles, and we're so consumed with the intricacies of our career or our plans or what we desire to have happen in terms of the temperature or in terms of uh, how people respond to us, and it's not changing God's plans. It's not affecting the establishment of His kingdom. God's speech here, God's speech the Lord proclaims, His kings reign. The anointed one here, of course, is Jesus. He's the one that he establishes. And what do we know about the establishment of, of Jesus' kingdom that has already taken place? Colossians 2.15 says that, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, so there's this, this power that he has, and he, he put them to shame by, by triumphing over them. The nation's rage, Revelation eleven eighteen says, but your wrath came in a time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now, Colossians two fifteen describes Jesus' defeat of sin and Revelation 11 is describing this, this future reign of Jesus. And I think therein lies the problem for many of us. Because we say that God's kingdom is being established, and yet, at the same time, as we look around us, it doesn't feel like Jesus is reigning. We see the way that our families are hurting, we see the way that people we love are in pain. We see the tragedy that takes place in emotional lives, physical lives, spiritual lives, and it doesn't feel like God is reigning. We know that God, that Jesus as he came... Established His kingdom that he, as He died on the cross, that He began to reign. Colossians 1.13, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And yet we know at the same time that reign has not yet been fully realized. Romans chapter eight verse twenty three. Not only creation, but we ourselves who are the who have the first fruits of the Spirit. This beginning process of the Spirit renewing all things. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. That's the fullness of our adoption. The redemption of our bodies, that's the fullness of redemption. That is that's what we're waiting for. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four. Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now that, that should encourage us. Where we are as we think about Jesus' reign, we're in a moment in time where Jesus has begun his reign, he's, he's conquered sin, and yet the fullness of his reign has not been realized yet. And so what is God doing right now? Right now, God is working in our lives to conform us to the image of his Son. And a good God and a great God is doing some very painful things in our lives to prepare us for his kingdom. And that's hard. God is going to continue to do what is best for your good in his glory, uh, even when you, we don't want it. And so as we say, thy kingdom come, we recognize we're submitting to the reign of a king who's establishing his kingdom in in ways that we don't fully understand. The king and his father are so powerful that their kingdom is established anyway. Then we come to verse 7, we see something even more incredible, the king's domain. The king's domain extended to every person To every place in the universe. Listen how it's expressed here in this part of the psalm. Now it's it's the anointed who's speaking. I will tell of the decree the Lord Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a, a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So these these nations that are united in their opposition, there's, there's no nation that's beyond the control of, of God and there's no nation that's not going to be subject to to his anointed one, to his his son, to Jesus. This is the king speaking of his ultimate reign. Now, how does this apply to where we are today? Turn into your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, if you would. And I want you to see how people who are living at the same moment of redemptive history that you and I are, I want you to see how they interpret Psalm 2, what, what they say about Psalm 2 and how it applies to them and their circumstances. So, these are Jesus' uh, disciples and his, his followers. We're months removed from the cross, we're not very far removed from the cross, even less time from the, slightly from the resurrection. And uh, listen, listen to what happens in Acts chapter 4. It says that uh, the, the council, the, the Jewish council, has, has threatened Peter and John. They let them go. They find no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So this is this, these are the, the, the friends and all the disciples of of Jesus, and this is their prayer to God. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Then qu- they quote Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appoint, whom you anointed. So there's that idea of the Messiah being the anointed one again. Jesus, the the anointed one. And there were gathered together those united against him, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, understand what they're saying here. Psalm 2 was fulfilled in what had just taken place. The fullest expression of rebellion against God and against his anointed had just taken place. That the peoples had been united, Gentiles had been there, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, everyone was united in their opposition against the anointed one. But notice this, their united opposition to commit the greatest atrocity in the history of humanity against, because it was against the, the most innocent person who has ever lived, that, that greatest sin ever committed was still not outside the sovereign plan of a sovereign God. This was part of his plan, and their united opposition to murder the anointed one did nothing. It did nothing to stop the advancement of God's kingdom and God's kingdom plans. And listen to their application. So, Here they are at this moment in redemptive history. The the Messiah has come. The people have been united in their opposition against him. They've, They've killed him. He's risen from the dead. And now they are awaiting his return. And so what do they pray as they as they think about this king and the sovereign God establishing his kingdom through the sovereign king? What's their application of Psalm 2? Verse 29 of Acts 4 says, Now, Lord, look upon their threats. And then they, they pray. They, they, don't, they don't pray. God, look upon their threats and pray. Protect our social status. God, look upon their threats and and keep the things of this world that we love so dearly close to us. God, look upon their threats and please don't take away our financial security at this moment in time. That's not what they pray. That's not a bad thing to want financial security. It's not a bad thing to desire peace. But listen to what their application of Psalm 2 is. As they see God's sovereign hand at work, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants, that's those of us who are truly saying thy kingdom come, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Jesus. Despite the rebellion, Jesus conquers. And those who are awaiting his kingdom, those who desire to see his domain extend and are excited about the establishment of God's kingdom, pray prayers like this. They don't pray prayers saying, God, preserve my kingdom. God, don't let me lose don't don't let me lose my uh, my things that I hold so dear. Don't let me don't don't, don't let this kingdom of the, of the world pass away. Don't keep it, preserve it. They don't pray prayers like that. They pray, God, let me fulfill Your purpose for me as You establish Your kingdom in and through me. Despite the rebellion, Jesus conquers through the resurrection. Romans 1.4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The extent of his domain is vast. When we, when we pray, God, thy kingdom come, we are simultaneously proclaiming, my kingdom go. God, I wanted X to happen, but instead, Y is happening in my life. I wanted X, but instead, why? God, still, Your kingdom come, God. Uh, my kingdom plans had me taking a vacation. You're calling me to be a part of this this mission trip. Your kingdom come, God. You know, I my kingdom plans had me dating this girl, and and yet, Your kingdom plans have me me breaking up because this is not a relationship that honors You. Your kingdom come, God. My kingdom had me pursuing this career and. Uh, And advancing in these areas and receiving these accolades your kingdom plan is different your kingdom come god my my kingdom plans had me healthy and had me wealthy and your kingdom plans as you work in my life are different your kingdom come brings us to the last point those who were wise those who were wise loved the king served Him, and sought refuge in Him. Those who were wise loved the King, served the King, and sought refuge in Him. There's no quoting of kings or God or the Anointed One in verses 10 through 12. It's, it's the psalmist's plea to the kings of the earth, and it's the psalmist's plea to you and to me, be you a king of millions of people or be you a king just of your own life. Be wise, the psalmist says. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest He be angry and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The psalmist is proclaiming wisdom for the listener and the reader, and and it's, and it's the gospel, right? It's the gospel. The gospel is this, the, the gospel is revealed in Psalm 2 says this, look, all of us are kings and all of us have this, this, this kingdom that we've established for ourselves and this, this kingdom is a kingdom that's united with other kingdoms of the world and being opposed to God. And the Psalm 2, the gospel in Psalm 2 tells us this, your kingdom ends with you in rebellion to God and facing his wrath and his fury for eternity. That's where your kingdom leads to. And the gospel in Psalm 2 says, and yet God has provided provided us with his anointed one to establish his kingdom, and you can be a part of his kingdom if you turn from your sin and find refuge in him. That's the gospel in Psalm 2, and we understand what that means, that God sent his anointed one, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, To die on the cross for our sins, he rose from the dead and now we can place our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. My prayer for those of you who have never done that would be that today would be the day of salvation. That you would place your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. My prayer for each of us would would be that we recognize again, commit afresh our recognition of jesus christ as our lord and king may god allow us to truly say with our lips and our very lives thy kingdom come let's pray father that is our prayer before you this morning be gracious to us help us to submit to your son our great king Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.